The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today from the pulpit to the pew. We're in Jeremiah chapter 28 beginning in verse 1. We'll read through the whole chapter. Now it came about in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon." Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Yet hear now this word which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, 
You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would use it to stir our hearts and minds toward greater obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, an obedience which will display our thankfulness for your grace and mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what do we have here? Jeremiah is in the temple. There are people crowding around as normal in the temple. And this joker Hananiah shows up. And he's recognized as a prophet. In fact, the scripture here refers to him as a prophet. Just being a prophet, that's kind of a neutral thing, right? It matters who you're prophesying for and who sent you and and all that. And, And so we are surrounded by prophets in our day. It's just that they haven't been sent by God. So Hananiah is there and he prophesies in the presence of all the people, in the hearing of all of them. What? Two full years and I'll bring back everything that was taken And we've mentioned before what the progress of things were. We had the last good king, Josiah. He had a son, Jehoiakim, who reigned in his place. Then the descendant of Jehoiakim was named Jeconiah, uh, Jehoiachin in some places. Babylon came and took him back with them. It says Jeconiah died in captivity in Babylon. He was treated well at the end of his life, but he was, he died there. He never did return. And Jeconiah had a descendant named Zedekiah, and Zedekiah was the last king before Babylon came in force and just leveled everything and destroyed the place. So we're in the reign of that last king. So the destruction of Jerusalem is right on the horizon. And here comes Hananiah to say, Hey, we're two years away from all this threatening and everything. It's all going to go away. And everything that's been taken will be brought back. And isn't God good that this is the way this is going to work for us? Jeremiah's response is kind of interesting right there at the first, right? (laughs) See what he says? Amen. Let it be so. What is that? Is he mocking him? I... I really don't think so. I think that comes from a genuine place in Jeremiah's heart. God has made him a lifetime of ministry in terms of speaking hard words to people that he loves. Prophesying destruction to people that he wants to see do well and prosper. Jeremiah's got no desire to see his nation destroyed or to see people suffer. He's got no desire for that. And yet God has sent him to give that message. And so when, Je- when uh, Hananiah stands up and says, hey, we're two years away, God's going to do great things, and, and it'll all be good. 
his response, I think, is genuine. Amen. I wish it were so. May it be. That's what the word amen means. Let it be. But he knows underneath that, that's not what the word of the Lord has been. And so they, they end their first little tussle here. Jeremiah leaves, and while he's gone, God gives him a word to speak to Hananiah directly. And that word was, what? You have not been sent by the Lord, and as a proof that you have been prophesying lies, you will die within one year. You said two years till it all comes back. Well, one year, and you'll be gone. Okay, and there's where that ended. The prophet Hananiah dies in the last verse just a couple of months later. There are some things that strike me about the way Jeremiah dealt with this false prophet. We get kind of nervous about false prophets, don't we? I mean, you read through the New Testament, and it certainly is a very strong theme in all the New Testament writings, this idea that false prophets, false teachers are a, are a bad thing. They're a big deal. And we have to, generally, what's the response supposed to be? There are a lot of places where there are detailed things, but generally the church's response to false teachers and false prophets should be to mark them and to avoid them. Mark and avoid is generally what we do. But how do we argue? You know, we get on Facebook and stuff, and, and uh, especially on religious things. You and I are the types of people that when we start talking about spiritual things and what does the Bible say and what does it not say, we think that's really important, right? <laughs> that's a big deal. And we don't like it when we see people out here spouting falsehood. And so the tendency is, man, if I've got the time and some jokers on Facebook spouting heresy and I could waste a day being on there. Of course, I'd walk away congratulating myself for how how smart I was and how I I really nailed that guy and it was all for the Lord and you know. Jeremiah doesn't argue like that. I find his response really interesting. He seems to Jeremiah seems to have no need to be seen winning the argument. He has no need to protect his own reputation. This is a man who only recently has spent the night in stocks. He will be thrown into he will be thrown into prison, and he's uh, disliked by all the people. He's had all the people calling for his death, and I, I, he he has some reason to want people to think well of him, <laughs> right? Because when they don't. He may be in some trouble, but he doesn't seem to care. You see that? He doesn't seem to need to be seen winning the argument. You know anybody like that in your life who has to win? You've got those people you argue with. You hate arguing with them, but because why? Because they have to win. It seems to me the better part of wisdom here that Jeremiah decides at some point, okay, we're, we're not going to agree on this and I'm just going to take off. Is that maybe what it means when Jesus said, uh, do not throw your pearls before swine? 
You know, one of the things that we're talking a little bit about social media, I mentioned, uh, one of the things that I think I have learned from being on Facebook and being involved in debates and arguments is this, that very few people believe what they believe because they heard a convincing argument. Very few people believe what they believe because somebody came and convinced them. They've got other agendas. They believe what they believe because it's better for them personally or it feels more comfortable. And generally, argumentation is about the last thing that changes anybody's mind. I've had my mind changed by argumentation before, and I'm thankful for it. I see it happen every once in a while. But generally, people don't believe what they believe because they got there rationally. They considered all the opposing arguments and picked the one that was best. That's, that never happens. And so the usefulness of arguing is kind of less than what we probably imagine it to be. Jeremiah has no need to be seen winning, even though the things that they're talking about, if Hananiah is right, then Jeremiah's whole ministry has been wrong. Everything he's devoted his life to, everything he's, everything he's done is invalidated if Hananiah is right. So you can see he might have a you might have some personal uh, stake in making, no, you need to know I'm the one who's heard from God, not you. But he doesn't argue like that. Why do you think? Why doesn't he argue that way? Why isn't he personally invested in being proven right in front of that crowd right there? Two things occur to me. Maybe you can think of more. I think one thing is, because he already knows. He knows what the word of the Lord is. There's no confusion in Jeremiah's mind. He knows if it works out Hananiah's way, he'd be happy to see it. But he knows. He's heard from God too much to be fooled by those kind of sugary, uh, sweet-sounding words. He'd love it, but that's not the way it is. And so today we hear Christians spouting doctrines that are easy to spout in a crowd. Because you know the crowd wants to hear those things. Talked about them a little bit in Sunday school today. That's why... Nobody goes out on the streets, really, and starts preaching the wrath of God. Or if they do, they're immediately consigned to the loony bin. This is a crazy man out here. He's preaching about hell and stuff like that. What do we preach? We preach about the, the very gooey, blanketing love of God over all things and you know, who's going to get mad at you if you go out in the streets and start yelling at the top of your lungs, God loves you just the way you are. Oh, prison and death for you. That's not going to happen. And, and clearly there are Christian doctrines, there are biblical doctrines that you can preach all day in the hearing of pagans and they won't be upset about it, which is why if you're going to have a successful ministry, if you're going to get your spot on TV or the radio or large campuses, you need to focus on those things. What are those? God wants you to prosper and, and God, God is a healer. Hey, who's going to be mad about hearing those things? Jeremiah hasn't been sent with that kind of message. He's been sent with a message of the wrath of God towards sin. Now, he hasn't been sent with only that. 
he has said some pretty encouraging things, and we'll see he will continue to do it. But God's message through Jeremiah is generally pretty dark, so that when he does speak a word that's encouraging or an offer of the grace of God, that should stand out like a candle in a dark room, right? So first, Jeremiah knows what the truth is, and he's comfortable with that. He's accepted it. He's built his life on it. And he's not going to be shaken because he hears somebody stand up and say something different. The second thing is, I think he knows he doesn't have to argue because God is on his side and time is completely on God's side. God has all the time in the world. You and I tend to feel like this is the argument that's going on now. This is where the fire is raging, and so we have to win it now. And I'm just saying, I don't see the characters in the Bible acting like that. I see them having more faith in God, who treats a thousand years like a day, and really doesn't care about what kind of babblings uh insane creatures are doing those are all going to pass away at some point and so my contention is the reason i i want to have you think about this is because <clears throat> i have proposed that the way a church should work is it should work absent anyone having authority in human terms or power in the sense of this is my decision, and if you don't like it, I've got ways of coercing you to do it anyway. That's the sort of power that the world strives for. We call it authority, and it's, it's the basis of every patriarchal sort of top-down authority structure. Power in this sense is what? It's the ability of the man at the top to enforce his decisions on everyone beneath him in the, in the power structure. And I'm saying that in a church, since the time of Jesus, and especially when he girded himself like a slave and washed the disciples' feet, I'm saying this must change. Because the Holy Spirit has now come to you and I in a way he didn't show up before. That is, each one of us in the, in the kingdom is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't need somebody pounding on us to get us to do the right thing. We shouldn't need somebody pounding on us to get us to change our mind and go in the right direction. Now, what that means is the only authority the pastor has is the authority that comes from the Word of God. When I'm saying things that come from the Scripture, those things come with authority. And you'll have to answer to God for violating whatever I've said that's from the Word. Amen? That's, that's right. But outside the word of God, I have no authority to come to you and beat on you and tell you you've got to change your life and do it this thing this way. I was reading a story about Puritan elders and how uh, one elder recommended that when you do the, the old family visitation thing, that one of the things they used to do and they thought it was good is that they'd go into the house and if it wasn't kept very well, they'd put that family under church discipline until they repented of their untidy housekeeping practices. And then, so you had the church coercing people to, you know, keep your house better and all that stuff. 
And I'm saying that that's, that's an extreme example, but it's symptomatic of the way many churches operate in other things, in bigger things. And my point is that once we start to understand that, that the pastor, the elders, the deacons, we have no coercive authority. The only authority we have is the authority that you recognize in us because you've seen the Holy Spirit moving through us. And that causes you to say, there's a guy that's worth following. I have no, I, I can't make you. I can't force you. I can, I can argue, I can preach, I can teach, but if you're on the opposite page, I can't, I can't, there's nothing I can do at that point. I continue to try to serve you and help you and, and stuff like that. Now the challenge comes, what if in a group like this, where this is what we believe about power, and that power is really the Holy Spirit moving in everybody's lives, what do we do then if somebody comes into our Sunday school class and has an agenda and starts teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God? How do we deal with that without resorting to those coercive things? And I think that maybe this episode here gives us some instruction. First of all, there's no reason for us to panic. If somebody did walk into our adult Sunday school room and start spouting things that were just unbiblical, who in that room, as it's now constituted, who in that room would be swayed by any of that? That guy would stand out like a sore thumb. Amen? And, and as soon as he opened his mouth, everybody would kind of roll their eyes and, oh, here we go again. Here's this, right? There's, we who are led by the Holy Spirit, we who are carrying around the presence of God with us and know the word of God, there's no danger to us if, that, if somebody comes in there and starts spouting nonsense. Now, it might get a little bit different than if he starts trying to attract followers to himself and stuff like that and starts causing these issues and the scripture has specific instruction. You're supposed to reject a factious man if he's uh, a factious man on the, after the first and second admonition. But that's still not coercion. You just, we don't consider you part of us. My, my question, my contention is that if we understand what Jeremiah understood that God has all the time in the world, literally. God has all the time in the world. We don't have to win every argument right now. And we don't, have to, we don't have to be seen victorious in correcting every wrong thing that's said right now. Now, Jeremiah did publicly stand up for the truth. He said his piece. He said what he knew the Lord had directed him to say. But then he's okay with taking off <laughs> at that point. And I think that we don't need to get so wrapped up with being right all the time. Uh, now, it's good to be right all the time. And I have definite opinions about what that looks like in everything. But I shouldn't be arguing about it all the time. And so I just feel like what we're seeing, this, this battle of the prophets between Hananiah and Jeremiah this is a different battle than the one between Elijah and the 450 prophets, the priests of Baal and Asherah. That was a different kind of thing, right? This argument is getting won right now. 
But it wasn't even won by argumentation. It was won by a miraculous pouring out of the power of God. And frankly, that's how this one is won as well. It's just that it wasn't so immediate and it wasn't so flashy. But God decided who's going to win this argument. And I think we can rest in that church. We don't have to be quite as anxious as I perceive that a lot of Christians are. There are heretics, there are, there are false teachers, and we need to take them seriously, but we don't need to be wrapped around the axle, freaked out about it. It's going to happen, and God's, if God doesn't take care of that guy's heresy for another 500 years, is that a big deal? Not to God. He's got all the time in the world, and so we don't have to squash every little bad thing that's said. We don't have to squash it right now. We address it. We declare the truth to it, but we don't have to be the ones that convince people. We say what we know is right, and then our obligation is done there. You know what I'm saying? Do you, do you, understand, the, do you understand the extremes that I'm saying? We don't refuse to argue, and we don't believe, we're not on the side of those who believe there is no truth or that the truth is not worth fighting for. That's not us. But we're also not in this group that has to win every argument right now. We're somewhere in here, trusting that God is sovereign over all things. And that's good for us to rest in that. Does this bring any thoughts to your mind or anything you'd like, anything to add to this? Or... And the other thing I noticed Jeremiah doing, when he left, you see that? He was willing to leave, which means he's willing to de-escalate the situation. Any fool can start an argument, right? It takes a wise man to figure out how to de-escalate things and calm things down a little bit. Another thing that I'd like to point out is Hananiah, it says he counseled rebellion. How did he do that? How did Hananiah counsel rebellion? He wasn't telling anybody to go out and worship idols or, or to break any other, other laws of God. He wasn't doing that. So how was Hananiah counseling rebellion? Okay. No need to repent. You can ignore what's been said before. Hananiah's prophecy... By prophesying peace, peace when there was no peace. By prophesying victory over Babylon when God had not sent him. It had the effect of telling them, God loves you just the way you are and there's no reason for you to change. And <laughs> God's like that hippie from the 70s saying, don't change a thing for me, baby. You're good just the way you are. And that's not the way God talks. That's not the way God counsels. And so when we have preachers and teachers coming in saying, peace, peace, it's all peace. What that can wind up being is a perversion of the true grace of God. And as Joyce mentioned, when that happens, you're not going to find a lot of people repenting and turning from their sin. If God loves me just the way I am, what, 
What do I need to change? What do I need to do different? And then if you follow that up with, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Oh, well, I'm all set then. I'm glad God and I have the same opinion of myself. I want to talk just a little bit. We didn't do it last week. We were together where Jeremiah made the yokes. Remember this? God instructed them to make the yoke. We're not in that agrarian society. So what is a yoke? It's like a wooden collar that was hung around the neck of the ox or the donkey, the beast of burden, that then you would then tie the straps. You would tie it from the collar to the load that was being pulled, right? And so God instructed Jeremiah to make a yoke for himself, but to also make yokes to send back to all the nations with their messengers who came to Jerusalem and telling them, you must come under the yoke of the king of Babylon. The nation that does not yield to Babylon will be destroyed. But here is the grace of God. If you will yield to my man, the king of Babylon, I may let you stay in your land and farm it yourself, sit under your own fig tree, enjoy the fruits of your own vine, but you will need to submit yourself to my man and to his yoke. So when Jeremiah is bearing this yoke, what's, this, what's it a symbol of? He's come under the authority of God through God's man, the king of Babylon. So Jeremiah is walking around the streets of Jerusalem uh, Babylon's already making plans to come and put Jerusalem under siege. And Jeremiah is wearing with him a sign that really kind of doesn't look all that patriotic, does it? Uh, now I would like you to turn with me to Matthew in chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Let's look at verse 28 through 30. No joke, one of my top five favorite passages in the whole scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Okay, this is a great passage. It's, it's a fantastic offer of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it is deservedly well-loved among everybody who's read their Bibles. It probably, I wouldn't doubt it holds some kind of special place in your own heart as it does in mine. What an amazing offer. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That word rest there has specific reference to inner peace and refreshment. That's an amazing offer. And I think that what we often do is we concentrate on that so much that we ignore kind of the, uh, the prophetic background of the image that he's using because he doesn't just say come to me and drop your loads and your burdens 
That isn't it. What does he say? Put my yoke on you. Now, we've interpreted that in a, in a sense that is true as far as it goes, but it still doesn't reach back to the Old Testament symbolism. Because we've interpreted that to mean that once you have dropped the load and the things that are making you weary and heavy laden, once you have laid those things down, now you take up the yoke of Christ and begin to carry His burden or to do His work that He has sent you to. And so the contrast there is between carrying these things that He doesn't want you to carry versus carrying these other things that He will send you to carry. That's right as far as it goes, but I want you to see that this symbol goes all the way back to what Jeremiah is saying here. What did Jeremiah's yoke mean? It meant you, your only hope is to submit yourself to the man that God has chosen to rule all the nations of the world. And now what does it mean when Jesus says it? Your one hope is to submit yourself to the rule of the one man that God has chosen to rule all the nations of the world. Do you see the difference there? Taking his yoke on you doesn't just mean you now occupy yourself with different activities. It means that you have submitted yourself to the rulership of the king of kings. Ah, does that make you excited? That gets me excited. That gives me some chills right there. And we have charlatans and modern day Hananias going all throughout the churches and on all the TV channels saying, all God wants is for you to have your best and to do the things well that you want to do. And all that yoke means is now you're going to be more prosperous in the work that you do. And they would reject the idea. They specifically teach a rejection of the idea that God would ever require you to yield yourself in obedience to the king of kings. They, uh, they say, oh, that's a doctrine. Of, that's a salvation by works doctrine. No, that's not a salvation by works doctrine. It's a doctrine that says that all those that God is saving, God is also changing. He doesn't save you without changing you. Amen? Unless He saves you and you walk out and get hit by a bus. Well, that's a pretty big change. Right? So God's going to save and change. And if you're not being changed, you're not being saved. And so do not listen to the Hananias who come to you and say, it's wrong for the Christian to preach any sorts of obedience. We've got... Andy Stanley that we talked about, who's now going around saying that the Christian should feel no obligation to obey the commandments of God. And he's not the only one. There's a passel of these guys. I think that's an exciting passage that Jesus is now kind of in the, in the place of a new Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know the difference between a kingdom and an empire? Do you have that clear in your mind? A kingdom is just when a guy's in charge of his land. An empire is when one kingdom is in charge of a bunch of other kingdoms. And that's an empire. That's why the head of the kingdom is an emperor, but his title, even secularly, he's the king of kings. 
He's king over kings. He's a lord over other lords. And so an empire is one that doesn't stay within its own boundaries. It goes out and begins to subjugate other nations to itself. David, at the height of his powers, wasn't just a king. He was legitimately an emperor. There were other nations in subjection to both him and Solomon. Now that was lost pretty quickly after Solomon departed, but, but that's true. That's what it was. And the image is clear that the one son of David who, who all the prophets spoke about would be one who kind of did the same thing, who brought all the nations in subjection, who brought all the nations under his yoke. And that shouldn't sound burdensome, right? The New Testament says to the baptized believer, spirit-filled believer, that the commandments of God are not burdensome to us. If you see the law as some kind of thing that's restricting you or limiting your freedom, <laughs> brother, you need to get saved. The commandments are supposed to be a joy because they come from the one who's living inside you now. Uh, another place I want you to see this, you can turn with me if you want. I want to read a little bit to you from Daniel in chapter 4. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is recounting the tale of when he went crazy for a little while. And God graciously and eventually restored him. But not after. I mean, not before he spent a lot of time eating grass like, a, like an animal and stuff like that. So he's describing that. Now, Daniel chapter 4 verse 10 now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Does that mean flatter? <laughs> its, foliage, its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Now God is showing this vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and who is he in this vision? He's the top of this tree. The Babylonian empire in this vision is a tree that is so large that animals in the sun can come rest in the shade underneath its branches, and all the birds of the sky can come and build their nests in its branches. And what is that a symbol of? It's not talking about actual birds. It's not an actual tree. It's a political tree, right? The branch of the birds that are coming in and finding a home and protection in its branches and protection in its shade, what are those? Right, the satellite nations, the subjugated Nations, those who have done what God counseled them and yielded themselves to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so there's that symbol. And then the answer of the punchline is in Matthew in chapter 13. Oops. It would help if all the Gospels said the same thing, so it didn't matter which one I turned to. No, I'm just joking. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven... The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than the other, all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And if your Bible has some way like mine does, it uses a different font that shows you that it's quoting something from the Old Testament. You'll see it right here. Where is this quoting from? It's quoting from the passage we just read in Daniel 4. All the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Who were those birds? It was the subjugated nations. Now, in Matthew, who are those birds? Subjugated nations. <laughs> right? Isn't that fun? That means that at the end of Matthew, when Jesus says, All power in heaven and on earth has been granted unto me, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What is that? It's bringing the birds of the sky into the shade of the tree. And God has all the time in the world, literally. We're not in a place right now where we can look around and see a lot of this happening. But there have been times in Christian history where they could. They thought that's what they were actually seeing is the birds of the sky coming in. Oh, does this get you excited? This is the plan. This, this is what we're involved in. And so what's our message? Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. He's humble. He's not like all the other guys who have yoked you up in the past, these jack-booted thugs who, with nightsticks and billy clubs and taser weapons. He's not like that. He's gentle and humble of heart. What does his authority look like? He speaks. He teaches. And as he does, you recognize the Holy Spirit speaking through him, and you say, that's the king I need to be serving. That's the one I need to be following. See how those salt fits together? Isn't this amazing? I'm not smart enough to make this fit like this. This is the one word of the one God built up into one house. It's an amazing thing. I hope this gets you excited. So what's our message? How am I doing with that submitting to the yoke? How am I doing? Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.